make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, never been banned from Facebook or YouTube, never been sabotaged or censored for politely expressing a difference of opinion, ex-Muslim host Ina, keeping it non-controversial. Welcome to episode 25. We're back on with the Life in Saudi Arabia interviews. And today I've got with me a Saudi woman who's a researcher at Oxford University, a blogger with pretty much the exact same name as the Saudi woman I interviewed last time. But they are not the same person. That Moody who was on CNN was in the U.S. and this one is in the U.K. So, hi, Moody. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You are now officially the second Saudi I will have a proper long conversation with, despite growing up there. Is that not (laughs) strange? Very bizarre, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I remember, like, when you and I were direct messaging on Twitter to set this up, I, I was kind of feeling, like, emotional, you know, because... It's so strange that I grew up somewhere and never had these opportunities just to speak with the native people of the country that I lived in. Mm-hmm. It is quite segregated between expats and South, or at least it was at the time. I'm not sure how segregated it is at the moment. But. Yeah, I don't know either. But back in the day, it certainly was. Yeah, very true. Um, it's also funny that not only are you uh, speaking to Saudis sort of for the first time in a way, but also all three of us are outside of Saudi yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're all outside of Saudi, and that's why we can o- openly speak about a lot of things. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so I remember that I saw one of your blog posts on the first time you had to put on an abaya, and it really resonated with me because I had so many feelings around the first time I had to put on an abaya. And just for anyone listening who may not be familiar with the term, abaya is the black cloak thing that you're supposed to wear for modesty purposes. Exactly, yeah. It doesn't include the headscarf, I don't think. It's just the bottom portion. So the headscarf's in addition to that, but it's also black. Right, right, right. So what is the deal with the... Why is this an unspoken rule that it always has to be black? Like, I know there's no there's no written rule about it, but I've rarely ever seen anyone in Saudi without a black abaya. I know they started having boutiques for them. Like in my later years when I was there, they started making some really fancy ones with like embellishments and little sheer areas and strange. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And actually I saw a photo um, of a friend of mine who's from Jeddah, who was in Jeddah over the holidays. And she took a photo of herself in an abaya and it was sort of grayish with colorful embroideries around the bottoms of the sleeves. So perhaps they are changing in in the less conservative cities, but I was in Riyadh, uh, December, 2015, every, all the abayas were still black. Yeah. So you're, so what, I mean, what is it like, uh, is black just, I guess, more modest because it hides the shape better? 
Like Possibly. This. I mean, that's a good question. Like so many things, it's not anywhere clearly written out or articulated. It's just sort of custom over law or alongside law, um, if we may. But but I think you're right. I think it's probably black is perceived as more modest in that it's not, uh, it doesn't attract attention the way sort of red might mm-hmm. or bright green or pink. Uh, I mean, these are these are all sort of counterintuitive to the purpose of the garment, which is to hide, essentially. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, the way that they have these boutiques now is also pretty counterintuitive as well, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot of these things they don't make sense, and they can't make sense if you just if you want to live in the modern world. It, it's very hard to be human and follow these things to the team. Yes. Absolutely. I think in a way the boutiques are making it a little bit easier for women to express themselves in a sort of uh, through fashion, the way a, a person might wear clothes under an abaya. In a way, it's sort of like, oh, well, this is this particular style and that says something about what I like or this is a different style or this is super plain. Um, but but you're right. It's in just one of the many contradictions that we see in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So can you tell me more about like your, your piece that you wrote about what, putting on an abaya for the first time, what kinds of feelings you had around it? So, I mean, I grew up in a house full of men, essentially. My mother um, left my father when I was 12. So about a year before I had to, well, a year before, to be frank, I hit puberty, um, which is when you're meant to start hiding yourself. Exactly. uh, Exactly. Yeah. So so I I grew up in a house full of men. And in a way, to me, it just highlighted how different I was from the people I was growing up with. So you did not go with your mom? You stayed with your dad? Yeah, um, because of the way custody law worked at the time, and I think it still works that way, although there's a little bit more discretion in courts as to whether or not to grant custody to mothers in the case of divorce. Um, After a certain age, I think it's um, seven and nine for boys and girls, respectively. I'm not not 100% sure about those numbers, but um, after a certain age, custody defaults to the father. Okay, yeah, in Saudi, of course. Yeah, so that's why I stayed with my father. But so, yeah, back so back to, to the abaya. So, so for me, it represented my difference from from my family, and it also represented a kind of transition from innocence in the sense that I could be a tomboy and I could blend in to no longer having that luxury. To now I was a woman and I was subject to the discrimination mm-hmm. that women were subject to, even though I was 13. Uh, and it was also, in a way, hypersexualizing. And I exactly and I I that. Yeah, and my blog is sort of like a 13-year-old girl really do we need to cover her? Is she really going to tempt men? I mean, that's, it's sick and unfair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to objectify a young a young girl like that. Right, um, it's so the exact those- opposite of what it's attempting to do, right? It It is over-sexualizing and objectifying um, rather than making her not noticeable, it's making her more noticeable. Exactly. It's and and especially in in the sort of house I, I grew up in, it was just it highlighted me in a way. And, and even if it was meant to erase me, it just highlighted that I was a woman and I was there, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, that transported to outside the house too. I felt very self conscious 
um, of myself after that. Yeah, and I mean, at that age, you're already self-conscious when you're going through puberty. You're already starting to have these bodily changes. Your breasts are growing, and you're already like, ah, so conscious (laughs) about it all. And then they slap this big advertisement on you that you're now a woman, it makes you all the more consciously that that's how I used to feel. I remember slouching, right? Because I don't want people to notice that I'm starting to develop breasts. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right to, to highlight that alongside what is an already uncomfortable at best experience of hitting puberty. It just, as you said, slaps an advertisement on all these changes you're going through and just confirms them to the world. Yeah. Like, I remember my mom telling me for the first time that maybe I should consider putting on an abaya now. And I was just floored. Like, she was really upset about it because she did not want to force me to do it. But they kind of had no choice, right? Mm Because... Once you start looking older, and then it's like, well, what do you mean I'm looking older? Like, is it that obvious? Like, then did it, you know, it just makes you go into this whole thing of consciousness. You're already having a hard time as it is. So, so yeah, it was just, ugh, it was awful. Now I had to put this thing on and acknowledge that, okay, I'm a woman and not a kid anymore. Exactly. And it is very much like pointing out all the stuff, as you said, you're trying to hide by slouching or, or wearing baggy clothes or, or other other means of kind of coming to terms with the changes you're going through. It sort of points them out directly. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. And it's always strange too, like someone that you've grown up with. Like I had a friend, uh, I guess, who grew up and was a lot more religious than my family ever was. So she started to cover her head in front of my dad. And, you know, immediately I thought that was strange. Like, dude, like he's seen you since you were a kid. Like, Mm -hmm. what kind of message are you sending when all of a sudden if he's coming in, you have to put your scarf on your head? Does that mean you're saying that what he's going to be attracted to you now? Mm -hmm. It's just so (laughs) offensive. I agree. I agree. Even if it's not conceptualized that way by the wearer. Um, and, you know, and I do respect people's choices to wear that, but I, I completely get what you're saying. It sort of, it comes with a bundle of um, assumptions, uh, whether they're conscious, people are conscious of them or not, that others might notice mm-hmm. and kind of interpret. Right. Even if the wearer isn't putting that... Um Together, while she's putting it on, she's just instinctively putting the scarf over her head because that's what she's supposed to do. But but think about it for a second, right? That is exactly the message she's sending. Oh, you might lust after me now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is really a strange message. Yeah, and disconcerting for, I mean, I, I don't know how old you were when this happened, but I imagine not very old. So it was a bit kind of jarring in a way to think of your father in that way having those thoughts at all which is yeah because you know especially if it's like if puberty is the thing that makes the difference for people for people then like you know last year you were out running around playing with me in my backyard and now all of a sudden you want to have your headscarf on if my dad walks into the room so it's just (laughs) it's a stark contrast yeah, absolutely. Even not even last year, even a week ago. So I think yeah. you're absolutely right. It is such a contrast. Yeah. yeah. So so tell me more about just life in Saudi as a Saudi. What 
what is that world like? That's not something I experienced. I know you said that you were one of the few people who got special permission to go to the American school in Riyadh, right? Yes. Um, yeah, that's right. So I guess you and I had a pretty similar schooling experience, which was fairly secular. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what was it like? So this is, I mean, I think this is one of the things that um, in a way makes me feel both um, outside of Saudi culture, even though I grew up there, but also very much still entrenched in Saudi culture because I went home to a Saudi household every night and I, uh, you know, my family was Saudi. So in a way, I was a third culture kid by day in mm. that I was, um, I had this completely different international perspective on my own culture. Um, and is sort of defined against my own culture because the American international school that I went to in Riyadh was mixed and, as you said, secular. Um, and the teachers were American, which is why I have this accent. So it's uh, it was a, a very bizarre kind of uh, back and forth between feeling like a foreigner in my own country and then feeling very much like a Saudi in my own country. Um, so I'm, I'm actually quite grateful to have had that um, variety of perspectives from such a young age, because mm-hmm. I think it taught me, it taught me how to be more accepting, and it also taught me how to th- sort of think about things in my own, uh, from my own perspective, from my own kind of unique perspective as it built. As we all have unique perspectives, it's just that in some contexts those are discouraged, whereas in others those are encouraged. You know. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of this confused identity stuff going on in Saudi because it is a country with so many different bubbles of existence and sometimes those bubbles um, kind of cross over so for me I lived in a western compound and had very little access to actual Saudi life except for when I had to leave my compound we had to go to the market or whatever then oh hooray we get to see morality police and <laughs> <laughs> everyone's favorite <laughs> my absolute favorite people uh-huh. um, but yeah so I also grew up feeling kind of confused because I was never Pakistani enough. That's my background. Mm -hmm. Um, When I went to Pakistan, I was always a foreigner Mm -hmm. because I grew up in Saudi. I spoke different. I guess I looked different. And for Saudi, obviously, you're told from day one, even if you're born here, if you're not Saudi, you're just a foreigner. You have no rights there. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's strange. Like, I couldn't really connect with Saudi as an identity Mm -hmm. and I couldn't really connect with Pakistan as an identity so the first time I really felt like I was home was when I moved to Canada you know as a teenager I think you're right I mean there there is much more fluidity these days and I think Saudi Arabia in a way is a bit of a microcosm for this wonderful I think label because in a way it makes us feel less alone of third culture kid mm-hmm. um, in, in that you know there there is a space now for this I mean in a way it, it assigns an identity to people who struggle to find an identity yeah. as you said you don't quite feel at home in the country that you're from but you don't feel at home in the country where you live and you only sort of feel at home in the country that you choose at the end of the day yeah um and i I actually think that's that's great because i think in a way it it's it speaks to hopefully a more mixed future um in the world where um even if there are bubbles um like i love that word actually of of identities or bubbles of, of groups um when they do collide it's not a problem you know it's it's cool. It's great. We get to learn from each other rather yeah. than talk past each other. Yeah. But, 
Yeah, I, I do. I do think that the just just giving people a kind of uh, a label of a third culture kid though did did help a lot of people feel less weird in having that kind of a background because it's it's not weird. It's just whatever your background is, um, and it's nice to have to know there are others who's who struggled with the same questions and who ended up fine. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think we're okay. Um, yeah. We're just. Uh, I guess we have a lot of different things to draw from, not just one identity. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. So, so dogs. So I. So you mentioned your dog. Yes. Um, Who's having a dream in the background? If you can hear the. Oh tiny yeah, dog. I can hear him. <laughs> I, yeah. So one thing growing up in Saudi, I never saw was dogs. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is yeah. that? So I, I, you know, I don't know the exact kind of verse or um, or hadith uh, behind this, but um, I just know that growing up, we were told dogs were haram, you know, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons for this was that they're dirty. Um, I can 100% confirm that dogs get dirty, but I can also confirm that humans get dirty and cats get dirty. I mean, everything gets dirty. So I don't know why this sort of arbitrary ban on, or not ban, I don't think it's like sort of banned in the way that eating pork might be banned, but um, I don't know why this kind of vitriol toward dogs. We actually had dogs growing up. Oh, in Saudi you did? In Saudi, yeah. We had um, uh, two Labradors and and then we later had, a. well, sorry, we had a pointer first and we later had two Labradors. were they allowed in your house or mm-hmm. they were very much part of the family wow um, see you've had an interesting upbringing i imagine your family was a bit more liberal right that you mentioned your dad having studied abroad mm-hmm. do you think that yeah i mean i would say that there was a kind of confusion in a way um over how liberal t- um, at, at certain junctures, and I think my father struggled with that a lot. I don't want to speak for him, but I think he he tried to kind of give us the best chance we had at having a flexible future. Um, but he was also aware that he needed to balance that against. Oh my goodness! Wow. Uh, so yeah, so I think he was sort of aware that he needed to balance the two and um, and actually the reason we had dogs one of the reasons we had dogs was because he had a dog growing up in Hail which is one of the most conservative regions yeah. of Saudi Arabia you know so yeah are sort of um, exceptions I think even within conservative homes yeah I, I mean I, I honestly had just never seen a dog in Saudi never on the streets so it was strange like whenever we went abroad to the US or to the UK and saw people walking their dogs like all of us me and my siblings um, we'd get so excited because it was something <laughs> that we had like never seen <laughs> yeah. it was actually quite wonderful to think about sort of enjoying that for the first time yeah, yeah. So what more about the inconsistencies about life in Saudi? Have I don't know if this struck you as odd, but this was something that always stood out to me, like how, how women don't work often there obviously. So men have to do all the jobs, right? Um but even like sell lingerie. So they mm-hmm. had like the raciest lingerie like up in the windows all the time like Mm -hmm. you don't even see that kind of stuff like in sex stores sometimes you know but it was just like up in Saudi in the windows and then there was always these like old angry looking dudes like 
selling you bras and stuff. <laughs> so I would, I don't know, it was just awkward trying to buy a bra in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just as as every other kind of rite of passage for, for young girls is awkward elsewhere. It's 10 times. It's 10 times worse in Saudi. Yeah, because there's like a, you know, a furry cheetah printed crotchless lace thing like right in the window and you're like yeah what (laughs) oh my god that's a wonderful image um yeah I I do well I mean I, I I think it's it's changed a bit in terms of like um employment um of women and and what jobs they where they can do I think um it's more the sort of gender inequality on the employment level is more um, as an indirect result of all these bizarre rules surrounding women. Like we can't drive, so how do we get to certain jobs? Or yeah. um, certain jobs, even though male guardianship doesn't require guardian consent for employment, certain employers still require it because of that kind of environment. Right. Men are considered dependent. So they so only right, recently are, changed that too, didn't they? Where exactly, yeah. where they don't require the consent, but some employers still require the consent. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there are limitations, but it is getting, it is much better than I think when either of us um, lived there. Um, but, but you're right. There's still this kind of bizarre uh, contradiction where um, a man can sell a woman extremely sexy and sexual looking lingerie um, or a man that's a complete stranger can drive a woman that somewhere you know so there are a whole a host of contradictions that result from gender inequality um that that clash with the rules on which the gender inequality is based you yeah. know <laughs> so so i think you're right there is i mean and then and then i think um another thing you might have been getting at was the kind of again this sexualization of things in in plain sight whereas women aren't even allowed to walk around in jeans and a baggy t-shirt exactly (laughs) Saudi Arabia is full of these strange contradictions like now with smartphones it's different obviously Mm -hmm. Um, but when I was a kid like just taking a picture at a roundabout was taboo Mm -hmm. Mm, but there were photo developing places everywhere so <laughs> very strange. <laughs> very exactly. Okay, so what have you had any encounters with morality police? Um uh actually I had one when I was um, in the sort of first couple months of wearing an abaya in which um I was stopped because my jeans were visible below the abaya line. Like um, in your ankles? Well, my ankles weren't. It was just that I was wearing pants or trousers. Rather right, than so your pants. trousers yeah. were showing, like the ankles of your trousers were showing? Exactly, wow. yeah. Wow. Exactly. Um, so, that, and I, I was actually once also, um, I don't know whether I should sort of share this publicly, but I was at a party uh, with boys, oh, gasp, <gasps> <laughs> when I was in the seventh grade, and uh, the party was busted by the religious police because of the mixing of the sexes. So, I've had a few uh, choice encounters with. Right, religious. right. There was always this fear at parties that you'd be busted. Even our school, actually, they got into some trouble when the morality police found out we were having co ed swimming lessons. Really? And so I think they, they, they came to some agreement that they would separate the entrances of the school. 
So the main entrance went to the boys, and then there was like a shitty side entrance that, of course, the girls had to go to. <laughs> of um, and somehow the Mutawas, the morality police, were appeased by that. Oh, okay, so they're going in through separate doors. They must be kept separated inside. But no, <laughs> like we were literally just meeting on the other side of the wall, like... And going into class together. It was such a stupid, <laughs> stupid thing. Yeah. But yeah, we had to do yeah. things like that. It's like, um, I think sometimes when one goes through the airport, you feel like all the security you go through is just theater. And anyone can really, if they wanted to, sort of find some other, devise some other way to get something through. Um, and I think in, the, in a sort of analogous way, a lot of the policing um, of such things is cosmetic. In a way, if it just, if we don't really see it and you can comply with these bizarre uh, choices of, of cosmetic um, things to comply with, then we'll just pretend the rest of it isn't happening. Right. It's uh, like a maintaining of some sort of strange order. Whether it's happening or not, they don't want to scratch beneath the surface, really, when it comes to Westerners and their schools and their compounds. But as long as you follow the rules so it looks like <laughs> you're living in fear, <laughs> then it's okay. Exactly. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Wow, it's just, you know, it makes me sad, though, because now that I've left Saudi and I'm a kind of an out and proud ex-Muslim, mm -hmm. I likely won't go back there again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's strange because I have this mixed uh, loathing and affection um, mm -hmm. for the country that I grew up in, right? Uh, it's dangerous for me, so obviously... It's not very good for women. I'm not thrilled about that. Those are the things I oppose. But then there are these happy childhood memories. Like, I would love to go back and see the streets and the malls and the things that I grew up with. But I probably won't have that chance. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I, I sort of feel that way about sharing my childhood memories with with people. Um, so I, I, I used to be married, and I, you know, I would have liked to take my ex husband to Saudi Arabia to show him, but getting him a visa was so complicated that it was just not even worth the yeah. kind of hoops I would have had to jump through. So. Um, in a way, you, you want to revisit parts of your childhood despite the complications around it or the human rights abuses or all the ugly things about a place. Um, there's something about childhood memories that they're sort of imbued with this innocence and happiness. Mm -hmm. It's like an automatic, fuzzy feeling of nostalgia and happiness, you know? Yeah. But, exactly. But yeah, so I, I kind of envy the people that have this like rock solid childhood home that they can always visit. Nothing in my childhood was permanent at all. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, who knows? Maybe in my lifetime, Saudi will change and they'll let just tourists in and you don't have to get like a religious pilgrimage visa <laughs> just to visit. Other complicated pretend work scenario. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretend work scenarios, yeah. Um, I so, I do hope so. Did you, did you, I don't know if this was common, but it, did you guys go to, I guess you lived in Riyadh, so you were further away from Mecca, but we lived in Jeddah, so we went to Mecca often. 
Oh, really? Okay. Oh, well, yeah, because all our relatives would visit from all over the world saying they wanted to do the pilgrimage, so they'd come stay at our house, and we'd have to be the hosts and take them all the time. Like, okay. it really annoyed us as kids because, like, I don't freaking want to keep going to pilgrimage, <laughs> mother. <laughs> So so we would make up these games to play. Um, you know how you have to, like, run between the two mountains, Safa and Marwa, seven times or whatever? It's like these strange things that you have to do, like go around the Kaaba, like, seven times, these ritualistic things. So we'd, like, make a race out of it, right? Like, me and my brother, we'd, like, start timers and, like, just, like, run, run, run our little hearts out. It had nothing to do with religion. We're just <laughs> racing. <laughs> Being a kid, yeah. Yeah, being a kid, but then you end up looking like, you know, you're disrupting the the holiness of the place. Um, but hey, that's how you deal with it as a kid. I think, yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to, to be a kid, you know? So even if it did disrupt some some person's experience of it, but, you know, if it, if it was really that holy of an experience, nothing probably would have disrupted it. So... <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, we like to race uh, between the holy mountains, for sure. That's what made it fun. Um, but also the, this kind of pressure to like the holy water, I, I'm sure you've tasted it. Uh, I haven't, actually. Are you kidding? Um, no. Um, my only sort of experience with it was quite indirect in that my brother... Um, had cancer when he was young, and I wasn't—I don't even remember this oh, I'm happening. Oh, so sorry. But, oh, that's okay. He's fine now. He's, oh, that's uh, good. Like, a couple of years older than me, and um, very much my big brother still. Um, but but I, he he drank from it, I think. Um, but that's my only kind of connection to that. But which is bizarre, really, <laughs> that it would be so indirect. But oh. no, I never. never oh, had I the, wonder if like non-Saudis kind of overcompensate in their certain types of religiosity you know what i'm saying like because we're not we weren't saudi maybe we had this more more of a draw to go to mecca and experience the holy water whereas if you're kind of saudi you're you're the ultimate authority in the islamic world anyways right like pakistanis are always trying to be more arab so that's yeah. the joke um <laughs> So maybe your family didn't overcompensate and, I don't know, expose you guys to the, the holy water all the time. Maybe that's a really interesting. Um, I I never I never realized that or thought of of that as sort of Saudis as the kind of paradigm to emulate in terms of or or perhaps over over emulate maybe um, of religiosity. That's interesting to hear that. Really? Because that yeah, that's like a big thing. That's so strange that you've never thought of that. Well, I mean, I know that they're sort of the, um, because uh, because the country is home to the two holiest sites in Islam, they kind of have to um, keep up this standard of religiosity that others, um, other uh, majority Muslim countries or perhaps individual Muslims kind of try to look to whether whether they try to over overshadow that or not that's that's interesting hmm. yeah i mean you know in pakistan it's getting to a point where they're changing our wedding rituals right because they're derived from our south asian culture uh mm -hmm. hindu culture and they're not arab enough 
So they like kind of erase those wedding traditions and they're like, well, this is haram. And they kind of want to follow the Saudi version of Islam to the T now. They're changing our language. Uh, They are trying to pronounce things in a more Arabic way. Like there's a whole wannabe Saudi syndrome going on. Oh in the rest of the Muslim world, and it's amazing that you you don't know that. that yeah, I'm not, not aware. Embarrassed that I that I wasn't aware of that, but that's <laughs> that makes me that's such a shame to kind of let go of local or you know historical traditions in favor of trying to fit with some. I mean, arbitrary in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting that we discovered this, that like, you know, that's such a big part of my life because I know so many people who are trying to be more Arab and more Saudi. And you, I guess because you're on the top of that ladder, you don't even know this exists. <laughs> How bizarre to think of myself as on the top of any ladder. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even work out how to get up a ladder. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, the other Moody that I interviewed in my last interview about life in Saudi Arabia, uh, she was on a CNN clip. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? I didn't watch the clip itself um, because I was somewhere where I couldn't uh, oh, okay. have sound on my phone. Yeah. But I read the article associated with it. Was there um, what, what was in the clip? Uh, just I think they fought, they followed like three Saudi women. I think it was two or three and uh, how they are fearful of going back. Things like that. They talked about what life was like for women in Saudi and the lack of human rights they have. Um, and male guardianship, that whole campaign. Mm-hmm. And I saw some people online kind of trying to quantify, because I think one of the people, I think it was Moody herself, who called it slavery, mm-hmm. uh, how women are treated. Someone I saw online was trying to quantify it. Like, how can you call it slavery when there are actual slaves or domestic workers treated like slaves in Saudi Arabia? And I don't know if this is a... A topic you're comfortable speaking about, or if it's too taboo, or no, I actually think that's an important topic to talk about because I think, um, I mean, slavery in um, modern or early modern history has taken on this sort of black and whiteness. Um, <clears throat> you're either a slave and you have no rights, no mobility, and you don't make any money for the work that you do, or you're a free person who, and that's the sort of opposite of what I just described. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in history, actually, there have been varying degrees of slavery mobility, um, employ, employment mobility, and social mobility. Um, so I study the ancient world, and in ancient Mesopotamia, there are varying degrees of kind of restrictions on mobility or um, employment-related uh, dependencies, that sort of thing. So I, I do think it's important to remember that the violations of rights of migrant workers um, and of women migrant workers are are atrocious. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's a human rights violation on a completely different scale. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, um, being considered a dependent for the entirety of your life is, a, um, in a sense, 
uh, an enslavement in that it limits your ability to fulfill your potential in life. So uh, a woman in Saudi Arabia has uh, much less of a possibility than someone in New Jersey, for example, mm -hmm. to fulfill her dreams, to have dreams to begin with, um, to marry who she wants, to travel, to, to visit family, to leave the country, to do any of the things that are part of what she deems important to having a full life. So in that sense, it is a, de a degree of slavery. But I, I agree that it's important to include uh, the experiences of women migrant workers in this idea of feminism or Saudi feminism um, and to address those and to not forget that they are they are in many ways, uh, or at least some of them are much worse, worse off than many Saudi women. But I mean, I think there's also this kind of focus on the kind of privileged Saudi woman who's fighting against guardianship, whereas the ones that are most affected by it are the ones that don't come from privileged backgrounds or that don't have the same kind of access to education or that have extremely conservative male guardians or abusive male guardians. Yeah. So women are still trapped in horrendous situations. And I think to, to compare the two sort of misses the point. Yeah. Um, there are a range of human rights abuses that women suffer from. Um, and all of them need to be dealt with, but not everyone can deal with all of them. So, to speak. so true. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I mean, that's what always kind of irks me when I see people trying to rank who's oppressed more than another. And mm -hmm. then it just becomes this contest. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not about that. Of course, we should acknowledge all the problems that we can. And yes, you know, the migrant workers rights, as you said, are atrocious. They, they mm -hmm. basically have no rights. They get their passports taken away. Sometimes they're physically, sexually abused. They mm -hmm. are literally kept in slavery. Um, but that is not to take away from the fact that Saudi women do face some of these problems too. Yes, they're not brought in to literally work for the family, but they are oftentimes trapped in similar situations. And yes, some women are more privileged and some women are perpetuating these abuses onto domestic workers as well. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that it has to be one or the other. As you so beautifully put it, we can tackle all of it and not everyone can tackle everything at the same time. Exactly. So when there was this clip about Saudi women calling their... Um, entrapment and their lack of rights slavery I don't think it's fair to say well what about this this is worse and that's the real slavery and this is not slavery exactly and I think that that's sort of in terms of human rights discourse or rights discourse that's that's how I mean any abuse is treated as such regardless of the extent or the degree um, and even if one person feels like they're being abused in a certain way then it's worth listening to what they have to say and trying to tackle it um, and I and as you said I think there it doesn't mean we can't try to tackle everything it just it just means that you know this sentence that I've written on in 140 characters is talking about this specific thing. Right, and this CNN, yeah. this CNN clip is about the slavery of Saudi women. It doesn't mean to minimize the slavery of migrant workers in Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Beautifully put. That's. I think that's spot on. So, yeah, so I'm glad that we talked about all that. This is some important stuff, and I think that things are changing. Uh, yeah. 
which is which is fantastic this just the fact that cnn is giving it some attention the other moody was telling me that they had so much trouble getting the media to pay attention to them because there's this fear around uh there's just this idea that this is a sensitive topic that no one wants to touch it's kind of like um ex-muslims as well we kind of come with this untouchability where nobody really mainstream wants to deal with this topic yeah i think that's that's a good sort of analogy in a, in a way and it's kind of coming from the same place uh, so to speak so. yeah like criticizing uh institutions that we grew up with um from within Mm-hmm. And being critical of them isn't it's there seems to be this idea that it's feeding into this right wing hatred of immigrants and but it's it's not it's literally denying us a voice to not listen to us and only give the far right anti immigrant anti muslim sentiment if you deny the people who are speaking from within a voice then you're giving a voice to the people who um just want to demonize and generalize everyone. Mm-hmm, exactly, and then you only get that side. Exactly, really, in the media, which is heavily skewed. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in order to balance things out, I think it's time to start hearing the uh, stories uh, of minorities within minorities. I agree. I think that's another nice way to put it, actually. I think that's it's important. And I think it's important to sort of acknowledge that, okay, perhaps, you know, a huge change isn't going to be made simply by speaking out, but it's still important to say what you think about things and add that to the discourse because you never know what impact that might have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think we've covered a lot. Thank you so much for joining me today and giving us your valuable perspective and insight on all things Saudi that we don't often hear about. Thank yeah. you for having me. And thank you for, for giving a sort of audience to my uh, tiny voice in the large kind of ocean of voices, so to speak. <laughs> well, hopefully what that just... <laughs> <laughs> that will just continue to grow and grow and um you know power to you it was nice nice connecting with you really truly it was likewise something you know that is actually very meaningful in my whole life experience to connect with saudi women oh thank you that means a lot to me i'm 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 glad to have been part of the conversation all right well you take care you too bye-bye bye Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian Mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help. 